0: every story is unique but every conversion story brings joy to our hearts we rejoice with her uh, earlier this week uh, uh, she had uh, sent a note to me saying my my physical family is far away in india but god has given me a family in this church that's what fellowship is all about you know as i look around there's people from so many different places here uh, and even if you're here uh, uh, been here, born and raised here. Still sometimes, you know, that the church becomes a new family for us. Uh, we rejoice for God's mercies in her life. So uh, do join with me as I pray and we'll uh, start the service. Uh, Father, we are so thankful that uh, you gave us the blessing of uh, hearing how you drew yet another uh, creation of yours, yet another uh, individual to your son Jesus Christ united with him Uh, place your Holy Spirit inside and um, giving her the strength and grace to testify of her goodness before us. We are encouraged. Now as we open your word we pray that you will uh, speak to our hearts and um, help us to um, look at the truths you have in store for us and uh, submit to those truths. Give us strength to understand and uh, uh, apply it as uh, uh, as 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 we need to. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. This morning, I want to talk to you about experiencing peace with God. You know, given the increasing conflicts that are going on in the world, we hear people talk a lot about peace. But uh, we must remember the foundation of true and lasting peace starts with having peace with God, the One who Uh, has created us. That's why in this message I want to talk about how a person can experiencing this peace with God for all eternity. And I plan to do that by going through eight biblical truths that must be embraced by anyone, anywhere in the world, in order to be at peace with God. Eight biblical truths to be embraced. Now you can think of these eight truths as eight steps to peace with God not that I'm trying to give you some kind of a formula uh, to uh, experience peace with God Uh, not at all these are simply truths outlined in the Bible that I'm trying to present in a logical and in an orderly fashion so that you will have no doubt in the end as to what you need to do in order to have this peace with God so let's jump right in here's the first truth that has to be understood and embraced, and it is this. God is holy and loving. God is holy and loving. Everything starts with God. That's the most important thing. Experiencing peace with God starts with God. The basic understanding we must have is about the character of God, and uh, that the character of God, this God is a holy and a loving God. Let's start with God's Holiness, what do we mean when we talk about God being a holy god? we What we mean is that this God of the Bible is completely separate from sin in all its forms, but also he is entirely set apart from the rest of his creation. He is free from all sin as well as he is completely set apart from the rest of his creation. He is a pure God, no flaws. In Him, in fact, the very first song in the Bible, in Exodus chapter 15, talks about God's holiness. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? That's what Moses is singing. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, and working wonders? There are many scriptures that describe about God's holiness. Let me give you two more. For uh, Samuel chapter 2, verse 2. Here's Hannah. Uh, Hannah proclaiming God's character by exalting His holiness. She says, There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. In Psalm 99, verse 9, the psalmist says, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy mountain. Why? For the Lord our God is holy. Holy. Only once A particular attribute of God is repeated thrice in succession in the Bible and that is God's holiness. Listen to Isaiah's words as he describes the cry of the angels around God's throne, Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Holy, holy, holy. Some have linked that as an attribute to the triune God. One God and three persons, each being equally holy. The Apostle John describes God's holiness in this way in First John chapter 1, verse 5. The last part is, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. He could have stopped just by saying God is light. But then he makes this other statement. In him there is no darkness at all. Why does the Bible repeatedly stress God's holiness? Because it's vital that we understand this fundamental truth about God. He is absolutely perfect, absolutely holy, and there is none like Him. But not only is this God holy, this God is also a God of love. 1 John 4.8 and 4.16 repeat this statement that God is love. Did you notice in these verses We don't hear about God has love, which is true. But that God is love. He is the sum and the source of love. He is the embodiment of love. And what did this holy and loving God do? The the God who in His love gives Himself and His gifts spontaneously, voluntarily, righteously and eternally for the good of His, for the good of people. What did this holy and loving God do? That's truth number two. He created us with a purpose. The purpose is to honor and serve Him. People talk about what's my purpose in life? Why has God created me, folks? This is why He has created each and every one of us to honor and to serve Him. Revelation four verse eleven talks about this praise to God. You are worthy, our Lord and uh, our Lord and God, to receive. Glory and honor and power. Why? Why is God worthy to receive all this? For you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. You as the creator created us so that through us you would receive honor and glory as we serve you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31 So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do whatever you do Do it all for the glory of God. Even as ordinary things as eating and drinking, we should be doing it in a manner that fulfills the purpose for which we are created, to honor God. We serve Him as we eat our meal. We heard earlier, I learned to pray before having my meals. Who put that thought in her? I didn't say it. I don't think anyone said the Holy Spirit worked in her heart. To say, this is why I've created you. Even in the most mundane things, you are to glorify me. This is God's purpose for all human beings to honor, to serve and to fellowship with them. But something happened that destroyed this goal, this, this desire of God for creating us. to. There's something that destroyed this perfect relationship. What is that something? Is that something that the Bible calls as sin. Look at truth number three. We have chosen to sin against God instead of honoring and serving Him. Since Adam and Eve, every human being has chosen to sin willfully against God rather than honor and serve Him. Adam and Eve had one command to keep. Only one. Don't eat of this tree but right there the decision was made we choose to serve ourselves then serve you god since then that's the way it's been for every single human being that's ever been born what is sin the bible thankfully gives us clarity about what is sin in first john 3 4 the basic definition of sin is it's breaking of God's law. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. But the Bible also describes two more things about sin. Sin is a failure to do good things. It's a failure to do good things. Look at James 4.17. James says, If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So anytime you know something good to be done and you're afraid to do it, for some reason, either you're afraid or you just are lazy or you just choose not to do it, it is sin. And another thing that the Bible describes as sin is the failure in, in in it's it's doing things which we are not fully convinced is the right thing to do. Look at Romans chapter 14 and verse 23. We are told everything that does not come from faith is sin. In other words, if we doubt any of our actions, if our actions are contrary to our beliefs, then it is sin. Look at a couple of other translations that render it this way. The New Living Translation puts it this way. If you do anything you believe is not right, you are sinning. And the contemporary English version puts it this way. Anything you do against your beliefs is sin. Do you do anything that is contrary to what you believe? Of course we all do that. That's sin. So when you put this all together, sin is breaking of God's law, failure to do good at all times, and doing anything without faith, actions contrary to our beliefs. Now when we have that kind of a biblical understanding about sin, guess what? It's very clear. We are all guilty without any exceptions. All of us guilty and remember sin is not the outward actions it's also the attitudes of the heart Jesus in Matthew 5 verse 22 and verse 28 says even if you have anger in your heart or lust in your heart that is sin that is sin That's why sin is the most deadliest of all diseases. Why? Because it attacks 100% of mankind. A truth that the Bible repeatedly stresses. First Kings 8.46, Solomon says, There is no one who does not sin. Romans 3.10, There is no one righteous, not even one. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, sin makes us worse than animals. Because animals cannot sin. They are not rational beings. Sin rules every heart, pollutes and stains every soul. All sin. All sin is disgusting, loathsome and revolting in God's sight. The Bible gives a very graphic description of sin in Second 2 Peter 2.22 where sin is described as vomit and sinners are compared to the dogs who lick up the vomit. I know it's very graphic but why is God putting that in his holy word? Because he wants us to understand how he sees sin, not how we see sin. This is how I, a holy God, see the sin in your life. God wants us to understand that very clearly. Jesus in matthew 23 verse 27 compares sin to a stinking corpse and sinners being the tombs that contain the stench of filthiness of that sin paul tells us in romans 5:10 sin has made us enemies with god and as a result here's truth number 4 as a result of sin we face death as punishment we're guilty we're guilty this is a saying which I'm sure you're familiar with uh, if you do the crime be willing to do the time so this sins that we do continually bring about a punishment that, and that punishment is death, Ezekiel 18 4, God says the one who sins is the one who will die Romans 6.23 for the wages, there's a paycheck for sin and that paycheck is the five letter word death even one sin results in death James chapter 2 verse 10 the apostle writes to us for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it James sees the law as a collective whole listen one piece you break you're guilty of breaking everything and as a result of our sins, we face death. What is death? Death in its basic definition is a separation. It's a separation. Now the Bible describes three kinds of death. Number one, spiritual death. What is spiritual death? Spiritual death is a separation of soul and body. We are two part beings, soul and body. It's a separation of soul and body from the life of God. Ephesians two one describes spiritual death. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. This is how we come into this world. Spiritually dead. Bible describes a second type of death which is physical death. This is a separation of soul and body. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says just as people are destined to die once, that's referring to physical death and after that to face judgment. The Bible also describes a third kind of death which is eternal death, forever. That's the separation of both soul and body from the life of God forever in hell. Revelation 20, 15 describes this eternal death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. That's permanent, eternal death. This is how Hell is described in the Bible, and this is just a very short listing matthew thirteen fifty Jesus describes Hell as a blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, which means suffering pain in matthew twenty five verse forty one he describes Hell as a place of eternal fire in mark nine forty eight it describes there as where the fire is not quenched. Paul describes in second thessalonians one nine Hell as a place of everlasting destruction. Peter describes hell as a place of blackest darkness in Second Peter chapter two verse seventeen, Revelation twenty fifteen, which I read earlier, description of hell as a lake of fire, and Revelation 21 8 is described as a fiery lake of burning sulphur. Let these truths about hell sink in. This is what faces us if we die without a change in our life. Forever, this is what faces us. Hell is also a place where the devil and his demons will be thrown into. So imagine the company, all the devils, all the wicked. And wicked, according to the Bible, is one that does not put faith in Jesus Christ. All who reject Jesus, it's a place of unending, unmitigating, unimaginable pain. One minute in hell, the very first minute in hell, will be a million, no, billion, trillion times worse than a life full of suffering here on earth because that is when we will actually experience the complete wrath of a holy God. You don't experience that side of hell. You. you say, my life right now is hell. I understand when people say that, and I'm sure you understand too, it's a terrible suffering, but understand, there is nowhere near than the real hell. But that's what awaits, that's the first minute. And remember I said it's unending, which means you never get out of it. You may ask, why such a harsh punishment? Why such a harsh punishment? The answer, again, goes back to the nature of God. He is so holy. He is so pure. Habakkuk one thirteen. This is what the prophet says about God. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So pure. God, you cannot look on evil with favor. That's the idea. So how can this holy God accept and live with those who have sinned against him? Imagine someone hurts you or one of your loved ones really bad and the judge just lets them off. Would that be okay with you? You'd say, no. That's injustice. In the same way, how can a holy God just forgive sinners? How can he turn a blind eye to our sins? And that's where the next truth, truth number five, comes to play. Because a holy God wants us to come to Him. But what we do is, no, we have our own attempts to address our sin problem. And the truth is that it's useless. It's useless. Here are some ways humanity, mankind, tries to address the sin problem. Number one, some try to address it through good works. Forgetting we're supposed to commit good works all the time. But our good work still doesn't offset the sin. Here's what the prophet Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 64, verse 6. All of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. If our righteous acts are like filthy rags, imagine our sinful acts. Think about that for a moment. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Good works will not get us a right standing with God. Some try to become religious as if religion can give us a right standing before God. That's what the Jews were banking upon. That didn't get them good standing before God. Some try to develop better morals. Well, from now on I'm going to stop Bad company. I'm going to be more generous. I'm going to watch how I speak. I'm going to cut out watching bad things, etc., etc. All those things are good to do, but those things will not get us right with God. Because the problem with all those things is they cannot change the heart, which is the source of all sin. So these man-made efforts will leave a person either completely frustrated Or give a false assurance that all is well because of some outward changes. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 12, there is a way that appears to be right. It appears. It has all the glitz and glamour that everything is good. But in the end, it leads to death. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. It's got all good signs. But in the end, it's a road that leads to destruction. There is a way that appears because that is not the way of the Bible. That is not the way that God prescribes as the way to get right with Him. And because God knows our own ways of getting right with Him will get us nowhere, a loving and a merciful and a compassionate God provided the solution to us, which is truth number six. He's provided Jesus as the solution to our sin problem. Look at how God revealed himself to Moses. Moses asked, God, show me who you are. I want to see you. So God, as he reveals to Moses, says this in Exodus 34, verses 5 through the first part of verse 7, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. So the question is this, how can a holy God, full of purity, one who is light, one in whom there is no darkness at all, how can he exercise his love and mercy without compromising his justice? This is how he did, by sending his son the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for your and my sin. The Bible tells us in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates, not just talks about his love for us, demonstrates his love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. doesn't say, while we were godly, Christ died for us. Christ died for the ungodly. Romans chapter 4, verse 5, if I'm not mistaken. We are all ungodly. So Christ died for the ungodly. That's the best news. Christ died for sinners. Jesus is God's perfect sacrifice for our sins. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, Without the shedding of blood, there is, there can be no forgiveness for sins without the shedding of blood. But it cannot be any blood. Sinners cannot die for sinners because our blood is already tainted. Only sinless beings can die as a substitute for sinful beings. That is why in the Old Testament, God ordained a temporary solution for the sin problem by commanding people to offer animal sacrifices. You may wonder, wonder why animals? Because animals are the closest living beings who are sinless. Animals cannot sin. Why? Because they are not rational beings. They cannot think and process like us. And even with animals, God ordained perfect animals, blameless, meaning without any physical defects. Why? Why? Because God wanted people to know, I expect a perfect substitute. Even though this is temporary, it has to be blameless. But animal sacrifices were temporary in the sense animals are not really a perfect substitute for human beings because human beings sinned. So the problem for sin needed a permanent, lasting solution and there were only two options for God. Only two. One, either he could forgive people unconditionally but if he does that, he's forfeiting his holiness and justice. Or the second option is that find a perfect human being to be a substitute. But that perfect human being has to be an infinite being. Why? Because you and I are finite beings. If I were to be perfect, which I cannot be even for five seconds, let's assume hypothetically, you or I are perfect. And if we go to the cross, or if we, whatever way of dying, we die as a substitute, all we can be a substitute is for one more human being. That's all, because we're finite beings. So it has to be a human being, but also this human being has to be infinite in nature. That is why, that is why, God sent us divine and infinite in nature, Son, Jesus Christ, as a human being, as our substitute, by living the perfect life, There's only one perfect life that was ever lived. The Son of God lived it. Jesus Christ. By living that perfect life, Jesus was qualified to be a perfect substitute for our sin. And since Jesus is divine, which means is infinite in nature, his death was sufficient to cover all our sins, once for all. And by raising him from the dead, God the Father showed, I have accepted my son's sacrifice for sins, no more animals needed and Jesus does not have to be sacrificed again and again physically or even symbolically, First Peter 3:18, Peter makes this extremely clear where he says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, why? What's the purpose? To bring you to God righteous, that's Christ unrighteous, you and I and what's the purpose? To bring us to God which implies we're far away from God when we come into this world. You were dead in your sins, separated from the life of God. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. On the cross, Jesus himself said these words before he gave up his life. It is finished. It was actually one word in the original, but it is finished. What did, what did he mean by that? He meant the price for sins has been paid in full. That one word would be stamped on tax receipts those days, meaning paid in full. So when Jesus said, it is finished, he didn't say, I am finished. It is finished. What's the it? The work for which he came. And what was that work? To die and pay the price for our sins. And how do we know his payment was sufficient? Proof lies in his resurrection. We are told in Romans chapter four, verse 25, that he was, Jesus was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life to make us right with God. He was raised to life to make us right with God. The resurrection of Jesus is God's way, the Father's way of saying, here's the proof that I've accepted the payment for your sins, and by putting your faith in him, you can have a right standing With me. Resurrection is the proof, the price for sins. Someone has said, the resurrection is God's Amen to Jesus' words, it is finished. Yes, my son, it is indeed finished. It is indeed finished. So it is clear we have a sin problem. We fail to honor God by worshiping Him, by serving Him, by loving Him. As a result, We face death and our attempts to address our sin problem is useless. Jesus alone is God's solution to our sin problem. But that's not the end. We still need to respond to God's solution if we are to experience this forgiveness for our sins. It's like someone gives you a check. You still have to deposit the check. Unless you're willing to deposit the check, you cannot get the benefits from that check. So what should be our response to what God has done through Jesus for our sin problem? That's truth number seven. We must repent of our sins and place our faith in Jesus to experience this forgiveness of sins that God offers to us. Two-fold response, repentance and faith. It's actually two sides of the same coin, so to speak. Jesus, after his baptism and 40-day fasting and battle with Satan, launched his public ministry with these words in Mark 1, verse 15. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent, keep repenting, believe, keep believing the good news that solution for your sin problem is found in me. What is repentance? Repentance means a change of mind that will ultimately lead to a change of heart which will ultimately result in a changed life. It's a complete U-turn. That's what repentance means. Turning from our own ways to God's ways. Acts 3.19 tells us, Peter says, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. Without repentance, our sins cannot be wiped out. That times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Jesus himself said in Luke 13.3, Unless you repent, you too will all she repeats that again in verse 5, by the way. So Jesus makes it crystal clear. No repentance, no forgiveness. It's as simple as that. But repentance alone is not enough. It should be followed with belief or faith, not in ourselves, not in a church, but in Jesus alone. In particular, in the fact that He is the Son of God who lived that perfect life, paid the price for my sin by dying on the cross, and was raised to life. The Bible is clear. Without faith, there is no experiencing forgiveness for sin. John 3, 16, the very famous and familiar words of Jesus himself. God so loved the world. This is how he describes God loved the world. That he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. There's the qualifier. You have to believe. There's the condition. You have to believe in him so that you will not perish but have eternal life. Acts 16.31, Paul tells the Philippian jailer and us, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You will be saved. Believing in Jesus implies completely committing ourselves in full surrender to Him, trusting that He will save us from our sins. It's a surrender. It's a commitment. It's a wholehearted trust. Jesus was clear, if we don't believe in him, we will not be forgiven of our sins. John chapter 8 verse 24, he told the rebellious Pharisees who refused to believe in him, he says, he said, if you do not believe that I am he, I am the one who I claim to be, the savior of the world, you will indeed die in your sins. That's eternal death. Strong words of warning from the lips Of the one who is the embodiment of all compassion, all mercy. So two things to be done in keeping with the words of Jesus himself. Repent, keep repenting, believe, keep believing in the good news. Jesus as the perfect God-man fulfilled all of God's requirement for a perfect substitute and went to the cross as perfect sacrifice. When Jesus was on that cross, God the Father treated Jesus as a sinner by charging to his account all our sins and punishing him for it. Jesus did not become a sinner on the cross. He was only treated as though he committed all our sins, past, present and future. So when a murderer turns to Christ, the murderer needs to remember Jesus was punished on that cross as though he committed that murder. Isn't that magnificent? Think about that. That's the good news, people. And you and I, by the grace of God, repent of our sins and trust in Jesus alone because of the work of the Holy Spirit inside of us. God the Father forgives us on this basis because He's already taken all of our sins. He put it on Jesus. Treated Jesus as though he committed every single sin be committed. And he's already punished him for that. Now he's free to forgive us without compromising his holy nature and justice because sin was punished. At the end of the day, sin will be punished in one or two ways. One, either on the cross, sin would be punished Or the sinner who refuses to accept that goes to hell, keeps paying for it for eternity, but can never fully pay it. That's why in eternity the person suffers. Because in hell you will not be able to repent. Where there is no repentance, there is no forgiveness. That is why hell is unending and unmitigating in pain and suffering. There's an exchange that happened on the cross. Our sins placed on Him and based on Him suffering for that sins and dying for us, His righteousness, remember Christ lived the perfect life, placed on all who would put their faith in Him. See, if Jesus just came straight to the cross, died and left, it would leave us in a neutral place. There's no positive righteousness to our account. So that is why Jesus lived a perfect life so that the positive righteousness can also be placed on our account that's the honoring and serving God if only for sins it's a negative thing it just cancels out our sin but we still have to have a positive righteousness so God takes our sin puts it on Jesus God puts Jesus's perfection puts it on us the moment you and I by the grace of God place our faith in him after we turn from our sins the Bible calls this or the theologians have called this as imputation, or substitutionary atonement, where the actions of one person impacts the actions of others. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this is how it's uh, scriptural backing for substitutionary atonement. One of the verses uh, is 2 Corinthians 5.21. The New Living Translation puts it this way, For God made Christ, who never sinned, that's a perfect life, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. This is how we can be made right with God, only through Christ. Why? Because the Father made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin. Offering for our sin. Jesus as our substitute died in our place so that We could be saved. Does this message sound too easy to believe? In in a sense, it is. It just sounds too good, too easy to believe. How can this be? But that's where we must remember the God of the Bible is a loving God. Voluntarily, eternally, He seeks the good of people. He gave His Son It's God's loving gift to His creation. Not that we deserve. We can never earn God's salvation, God's forgiveness. We can never earn it. And we cannot do anything to keep it either. It's a gift. It's by faith we accept it from the first to last. Romans 1 verse 17. It's free for us, but it cost God His best. Cost Him His son to purchase our salvation. This is the supreme example of love. The Father giving His one and only Son for us. The Son giving His life for us and the Holy Spirit giving Himself to us by coming to live inside of us. But the reality of this love can only be experienced by those who by faith repent of their sins and trust only in the completed work of Jesus on the cross and by believing He was raised from The dead. That's the only way a person can be saved, or as the Bible calls it, as be born again. You know, it's a Rembrandt, that famous painter uh, painted uh, uh, this is picture of what's called often called as the three crosses, three crosses. And you know, when you look at the picture, your attention is drawn to the middle cross because that's where portraying uh, Jesus. Then uh, there's the the cross next to him on the left and right, where those two thieves. Then as you scan the picture you see the crowd the crowd of people at the foot of Calvary on that day, what we call as Good Friday, looking at Jesus but if you pay close attention, if you look at if your eyes pay close attention you catch sight of another figure almost in the side in the end looking at the cross art critics say that was Rembrandt himself putting himself there to acknowledge that he was there on Mount Calvary, it was his sins that contributed to Jesus going on the cross. The point is this: unless you and I come to the point where we see it was my sin that put Jesus on that cross, we will not repent. We will not believe. It's not about Jesus dying for the sins of the world. Jesus, you went to the cross for my sin because I am guilty. I am guilty through and through. That conviction must happen. We have to see ourselves as wretched and terrible sinners who have sinned against a holy God and are destined to hell. Unless we come to that point, we will not come to Christ. That's why, if you've never done that, You need to plead with God to help you see yourself as who you really are, a sinner who has offended a holy God. And once God gives you that grace to see it, then you must ask him to convict you of your sins and be willing to turn from it and to put your trust in Jesus alone and accept him as Savior and Lord. You must pray, God, help me to do that. Only then you are born into the family of God and say, I truly am a child of God. Not only that, when you do that, the Holy Spirit will come to live inside of you permanently. He will help you through all of life's sufferings with the knowledge that God loves you to the extent that He sent His Son to die for your sins, even in those dark moments. When you need that encouragement, when you're desperate for some hope, some healing, you go back to the cross. You who gave your Son will not withhold what I need at this present hour to carry me through this difficulty. Go back to the cross. Go back to the cross. You can face death even with a smile, never to ever fear the coming judgment. That's the promise of Jesus himself for all who come to him in faith. Look at the final truth, truth number eight. This is what Jesus promises, great promises to all who put their faith in him in john chapter 5 verse 24 jesus says very truly i tell you whoever whoever irrespective of your background whoever hears my word you need to hear the gospel and respond to it how by believing him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life look at look look at those three promises actually one promise in three parts but look at those Three, if you will, for anyone who believes in Jesus or puts their faith in Him, promise number one, has eternal life. You believe in Christ? Has. It's a present possession. Not will have. Has. Right from the time you put your faith in Christ, you have eternal life. Number two, you will not be judged. Meaning, you'll never come into judgment for your sins because Jesus took all that judgment on that cross. 100% of your sins. He took that on that cross. And the third great promises, he crossed over from death to life. From kingdom of darkness to kingdom of life. Already crossed over. Already crossed over spiritual, spiritually speaking. You're no longer spiritually dead. No one can look at a child of God who is born again and say, you are dead in your sins and transgressions. You were dead But God made you alive. You've crossed over from death to life. This does not mean that people who put their faith in Jesus will not physically die. Because we all physically will die unless Jesus comes and takes us while we we are alive when he comes. But even when we physically die, we will not face eternal death. Instantly into the presence of God. In Luke 23, verse 43, Jesus promised the thief who turned to him at the last minute 11th hour, 59th minute, 59th second, so to speak. One thief repents, puts his faith in Jesus. Look at Jesus' promise to him. Truly I tell you, today, not some far distant time into the future, because the thief's request was, when you come in your kingdom, remember me. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. The heart of Jesus is seen in this text because it's the heart of one who wants to save you, who wants to save you right now. This is the heart of the good shepherd who sacrificed his life for his sheep. Today, you will be with me in paradise. He doesn't say, go clean up your life and then come to me. Make yourself worthy to deserve my forgiveness. There is no making yourself worthy to receive this salvation. will always be unworthy. But Jesus died, remember, for the ungodly for the ungodly. Does this all sound too good to be true again? Do you still need, you still feel I need to do something in order to be forgiven? I need to do good works? Listen, if Jesus died on the cross for our sins, it doesn't mean he died for 50% of our sins or 99% of our sins. He either died for 100% of our sins or not. And if he did die 100% of our sins, which is what the Bible declares, then there is nothing left to pay. Anything we say as, I need to pay for my sins, makes God a liar. Because God has said, my son has fully paid the price for your sins. We accept it as a gift from a loving and a gracious father. Price for sins has been fully paid. That doesn't mean we live any way we want. Absolutely not. We pursue obedience, but our obedience at best, even on our best days, still is filled with shortcomings. Still filled with shortcomings. He's paid it all. That's why we sing Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. The Bible clearly says we're saved by grace. Grace which is God's free gift or free favor shown to us who don't deserve it, will never deserve it. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Paul is repeating again and again, not by works. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, He, that is God, saved us, Not because of righteous things we had done. Again, not because of your good works, of your morality, of getting a religion. No, but because of his mercy, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, pointing to that new beginning, a new heart, a new nature. Saved by grace through faith, we cannot earn our salvation. If we could earn our salvation, why the cross? Why should the Son of God come and suffer and die? If there was another way, no, there is no other way to get right with God but the way of Jesus. We cannot say, I trust in Jesus and at the same time, I trust in my own efforts to get right with God. It's one or the other. And trusting in our own efforts, we saw, is useless. It's useless. So please, Do the right thing if you have never done it. Cry out to God to forgive you of your sins. If you've never done that, please cry out. Ask Him to help you to see who you really are in His sight. You may look at the mirror and say, that's a person to be admired. But without Jesus, God says, I look at you, I abhor you because of your sin. But yet, I'm offering you forgiveness. Call out to me. Those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's God's promise. Romans 10 verse 13. You come to Jesus. You cry out to Jesus. He will accept you. doesn't matter how much you've messed up. In John 6 verse 37, last part Jesus says, whoever comes to me again, whoever, I will never drive away. He invites people of all backgrounds to come to him and promises they will find what they need in him and in him alone. John 6.35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. We need bread to survive. He says, I am the bread of life, meaning I am the one that can give you spiritual life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I will fulfill all your longings. John 7.37, again, let anyone who is thirsty. There's the deep longing in your heart. The longing that only Jesus Christ can fill, my friends. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink freely. That's the idea. So come. Don't let anything or anybody stop you from coming. Listen, God has set two ways before you today. One way is the way through Jesus that leads to eternal life and blessings. The other way Is your own way. You reject Jesus, but that's the way that may seem right to you, but that's the way that leads to curses and finally eternal death. Oh, how I pray. I prayed this week. I prayed last night. This morning I was on my knees before coming to church that the Holy Spirit will help those amongst us who are still far away to choose the way to life and blessings not only for this life but more importantly for the life to come. And when you come to Jesus, only then you can experience this true peace. The foundation of all peace, the peace with God. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, we are told, Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us being made right in God's sight by faith that's the way to experience peace with this God only through Jesus we can have true peace a peace that extends to all eternity so there we have eight truths or eight steps so to speak that must be embraced by anyone anywhere in the world in order to be peace with God truth number one is this God is holy and loving truth number two God created us with a purpose to honor and serve Him. Truth number three, we have chosen to sin against God instead of honoring and serving Him. Truth number four, as a result of sin, we face death, spiritual, physical and eternal death. And truth number five, our attempts to correct the problem, to address our sin problem, is useless. Number six, a loving and gracious and merciful God has provided Jesus. And if I can add Jesus alone as the solution to our sin problem and truth number seven, we need to respond. How? By repenting of our sins and placing our faith in Jesus alone to experience the forgiveness he offers. And when we do that, we can experience truth number eight, Jesus' great promises to all who would put their faith in him. You have eternal life. You will not come into judgment. You've crossed over from death to life permanently. There's no going back. It's like when a child comes out of the mother's womb, there is no way the child goes back. If you are born again, your salvation is secure. There's no going back into that. Like the child cannot go back into that womb, God will not undo what he has started. He who began a good work will bring it to completion. That was the prayer one of the brothers prayed for Nishta earlier to get her ready for her testimony. He who began a good work. Remember that? I think one of you brothers prayed. He who began a good work will bring it to completion. Folks, that's the good news. So if you've never experienced this peace, I hope today is the day you get to experience it. There's nothing, absolutely nothing like having your sins washed away by the blood of Jesus. Isaiah 118 you reminded of that during testimony time. Nothing like having your conscience freed from the guilt of your sins and of the fear of the coming judgment. Listen, God has done all that He can do for your sins. Nothing more can be done. Nothing more. In love, He offers you full pardon for your sins no matter how bad bad they are. Remember, you're never good enough and you never will be good enough to get to heaven on your own. Even one sin cuts you off. You need Jesus. So please come to Him. Surrender your life to Him. Or be prepared to face the alternative which is hell. A place from which there is no getting out. A place of unending torment and suffering. So I beg you once again, please be saved. Come to Jesus as you are in repentance and faith. And once you come to Jesus, you must first and foremost publicly tell of your faith through the waters of baptism. See, baptism, water baptism, is an outward way of saying to the world as to what has happened in your heart. Salvation is by faith alone, grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. But water baptism is a way of saying to the public, this is what happened, this is what God has done inside of me, He has helped me to see my sin as He sees it. He has helped me to turn to Him in repentance. He has helped me by giving me the faith to believe in the Son of God who died on that cross for my sins and to be buried and to rise again. That is why I am testifying through the waters of baptism. The Bible makes it very clear. Water baptism must follow true repentance and faith in Jesus. In Acts chapter 2 verse 37, this is the call. Repent and be baptized. Notice what is the first thing that must happen? Repent. Repent has the idea of repentance and faith. Two sides of the same coin. Repent and then be baptized for the forgiveness every one of you. No exceptions. In the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and people in the early church got baptized as soon as they put, as soon as they put their faith in Jesus. Acts chapter 2 verse 41. Notice again, those who accepted his message, they just didn't hear it, but they accepted it, were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So hear the message, respond to it positively by repenting and putting your faith in Jesus and then be Baptized and the way to be baptized is by immersion. Jesus himself was baptized by immersion. Matthew chapter 3 verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. Went up, signifying immersion. John the Baptist baptized people by immersion. John chapter 3 verse 23. Now John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem. Why? Because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. You don't need a lot of water if all you're doing is sprinkling or dotting the forehead. Philip, one of the twelve, baptized the Ethiopian eunuch by immersion. Look at Acts chapter 8 verses 35 through 39. Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture talking about Isaiah. And he told this Ethiopian eunuch, this royal official, the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? Just pause for a moment. Why is he saying, Look, there is water. This man is traveling on a long journey. He would have had water to drink. Philip could have just taken a little water. Hey, Here, I'm darting your forehead or sprinkling. You're good to go. No he understood baptism is to be by immersion. So they see some water by the roadside, possibly a stream or a little lake, whatever might be the case. And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. If you're using an NIV, look at the footnote there. And the eunuch answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And notice what happened in verse 38. Uh, he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch, please pay attention, went down into the water And Philip baptized him. And verse 39. Pay attention. That's what that alarm was for. It is by immersion. We are big on immersion here. Okay. We'll dunk you. And verse 39. When they came up out of the water. Notice that verse 38. They went down into the water. Verse 39. When they came up out of the water. The spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again but went on his way rejoicing. I don't think James and I when we're in the water we're going to be taken away somewhere. We'll be here in a little while as we uh, help Nishta get baptized. But notice, you think the spirit of God foresaw this confusion of baptizing babies? So that's why he's put in the text here went down into the water and came up out of the water. Folks, believe the word of God. This is unchanging. With with all due respect, and and I'm being very careful here, uh, uh, there are many, I understand, many great theologians from whom I I learn a lot, who uh, don't see it this way, but at the end of the day, this is the word of God. It doesn't matter how persuasive, how eloquent, and there are many who can speak much better to support infant baptism. But folks, a plain reading of the text tells us you have to believe, you have to repent, and then you have to be baptized and that too by immersion. Why? Immersion gives the good picture. Christ died, buried, rose again. So when you go into the water, you're saying, I am identifying myself or I have identified myself by the grace of God with Jesus' death for my sin. And I go, I'm dead to my old life and just as Jesus was raised, to show proof that my sins were forgiven, the payment was fully paid, I'm coming up to show I'm now a new person. That's happened in my heart world. I want you to know outwardly that this has happened in my heart. So if you have been truly convicted of your sins, repented of it, and accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you must be baptized publicly by immersion without delay. I know some of you have been baptized as babies. You come from backgrounds like that. But you you say, I put my faith in Jesus. Great. Praise the Lord. But follow through. Follow through. This is the command. This is the word of the living God. You're always safe when you obey the word of God. No matter the opposition. No matter the cost. When you're afraid If I go through this, there will be a consequence. Think of the cross, how much he did for you. Why would you not want to obey him? And if you are disobedient to the very first command as a believer, you are now putting yourself in a place of weakness and the enemy. And the enemy will keep hitting you and hammering you and giving you a spiritual life that is dead and not bearing as much fruit as it can and as it should. first step of obedience and then you continue your walk as a faithful follower of jesus by faithfully reading the word of god diligently praying confessing your sins witnessing to unbelievers and being committed to a biblical church you must always remember as a believer as you examine your own life that my love my love for god should be on an increasing level and my hatred for sin should also be on an increasing level. You cannot increase in your love for God without increasing in your hatred for sin. Because the more I love some person I love a person, the more I'll hate what hurts them. Logical, right? If I love God and He hates sin, I should hate sin more. And see if you're committed to fellowship, committed to prayer. These are all some of these and others are the marks of a genuinely converted person examine your life or even better as the spirit of god to search your heart to see if these marks are present in your life if not it is very possible you're not a believer you're not a true christian you're not born again you may have gone to church all your life you may even have been in ministry but you're not saved you're not in a right relationship with god don't despair you can start today. That's the that's the beauty of the gospel. You can humble yourself and say, Lord, all my life I've been deceived. Self deceived? Blind as I came into this world, then there's this double blindedness because Satan has also blinded my eyes. But today, help me to call on your name. Right where you're sitting, you can call on the name of the Lord. And you can have new life, a new birth. Don't despair. And if there's genuine evidence of Salvation, true salvation, please continue on the narrow path. I'm speaking this to myself as well. To continue on the narrow path, the path of self-denial, where we continually depend on the Holy Spirit to help us persevere to the very end by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the one who died and rose again, interceding for us and coming soon in full glory. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you will by your Spirit, seal these truths to our heart. You know, you know, Lord, how you can gain glory through these feeble words of mine. But I just want to thank you for your word. Thank you for, thank you for the cross, dear Lord. Thank you for the salvation you give to us. Thank you for suffering for us. Thank you for enduring such shame, such scorn, such opposition, such rejection, continually despised, and rejected even now you're despised and rejected but you continually still keep extending your love and forgiveness to people oh what a beautiful savior you are i pray that every single one of us here lord will rejoice in walking in the narrow path that path of self-denial and shame and rejection and suffering and disappointment and pain and sorrow yet mingled with great joy with joy of having your spirit live inside of us the joy of the good things you still give us to enjoy the joy of having you walk with us every day of our lives and the joy of knowing that our sins are washed away once and for all by that precious blood you shed on the cross thank you jesus thank you i pray that you will seal these truths to our heart and prepare us lord as we witness the baptism of a dear sister here in in your name and for your fame we pray amen